0: Politics Girl has a new sponsor, Stamps.com. We hear a lot about the post office these days because it's quite clear that the most corrupt and self-serving capitalists in this country would like to take our national postal service and privatize it for their own benefit. We cannot allow that to happen. So we must support the post office being a successful public company every chance we get. However, that does not mean we wanna spend our entire life in line at the post office. If you have a small business, time is money and you can't afford to miss out on opportunities to grow because you're doodling around in a line of 17. Stamps.com lets you print official U.S. postage right from your computer, and it saves you a ton of money in the process. Stamps.com gives you access to all the post office and UPS shipping services without having to go to the post office or UPS, and it gives you discounts you can't find anywhere else, like up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. Yes, you heard that right, up to 76% off. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. No special supplies or equipment. You can print official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send it. So stop wasting your time in lines and overpaying for shipping with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code POLITICSGIRL for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just try it out. That's Stamps.com. Click the microphone at the top of the page and enter code POLITICSGIRL. I can see her in a little tiny picture.
1: I'm not that small. Oh yeah, there you are. (laughs) Oh, look how how sophisticated your office is. I love it. Look at all your wood. Yeah, I read those books all the time, yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, constantly, right? All the ones that match. Those are the ones we like the best. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. This week's episode is a candid conversation with New York Governor Kathy Hochul. I realized that with all that's going on in the world right now, we were going to get through Women's History Month without a single powerful woman coming on to talk to us. And we couldn't have that. I mean, some feminist I would be. And since these past couple of years have brought so much attention to the role of the governor in our states, how much power they have to make and change laws unilaterally, how much damage they can bring or good they can do, how dangerous the wrong person in that job can be, I thought we should talk to a governor. Did you know that we've only had 45 women governors in the history of America? And we didn't have the first one until 1975. 19 states have never had a female governor, and of the 45 women who have held the role, 30 were elected, three replaced their husbands, and 11 became governor by succession, meaning they were the lieutenant governor first. Six of those women went on to win full terms, which is what we're hoping our guest will do in November. Governor Hochul was the Democratic lieutenant governor of New York when Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned last summer after the multiple sexual harassment allegations against him made it impossible for him to continue in the job. Facing removal by the state legislature by impeachment and with the Democratic establishment against him, Cuomo announced his resignation and Kathy Hochul found herself accepting the role as New York State's 57th governor and the first woman to ever hold the post. At the time, Governor Hochul said Cuomo's resignation was the right thing to do and in the best interest of New Yorkers. In less than a year, Governor Hochul has gone from governor by default to leading gubernatorial candidate for November's election. But based on her background, perhaps that was always her path. Born and raised in a suburb of Buffalo, New York, Kathy attended Syracuse University, where she majored in political science and was the student body vice president. She went on to get a law degree from Columbus School of Law and right out of law school took a job back in Buffalo as an aide for Democratic Representative John LaFalce, and then later for U.S. Senator Daniel Monaghan. The mother of two, Kathy took a step back from work to raise her children and then returned to politics by joining her local town board, then as a member of town council, and then moving on to county clerk. In 2011, she ran for Congress and won a special election in New York's conservative 26th district and served until 2013 when her district was redrawn and she was essentially gerrymandered out of her seat. In 2014, she was chosen by Andrew Cuomo to be his running mate and was an incredibly successful lieutenant governor until 2021, when she took over as governor after Cuomo resigned. Governor Hochul is now considered to be the clear frontrunner for the 2022 election. In fact, she just received the Democratic Party endorsement and was introduced at the convention by keynote speaker Hillary Clinton, who said, I've known Kathy for a long time, and I can tell you something everyone is learning. No one will work harder for the people of the Empire State. Every county, every community she is a governor for all of us. So without further ado, please welcome the governor of New York, lifetime public servant, and passionate fighter for women's rights, Kathy Hochul. Welcome, Kathy.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Looking forward to our conversation.
0: Oh, me too. Um, first of all, let me just say that I went through your work in your time as lieutenant governor, and you seem to be very busy focusing on things that truly support the people of New York, particularly the working people in things like job creation. And uh, you're doing a lot of policies to help people make ends meet. Um, You spearheaded a state family leave program, which we're all very interested in from the Build Back Better bill. You are doing expanded access to childcare. You're working to eliminate the gender wage gap. You championed the Enough Is Enough law, which is around preventing sexual assault on college campuses. Um, you were and still are working incredibly hard to build back a more inclusive economy post-COVID in the post-COVID world. And you were co-chair of the Opioid Task Force. You chaired the State Women's Suffrage Commission. Um, And I'm sure almost a little bit bizarrely, considering who your predecessor is, you are incredibly strong advocate for combating sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace. So here we are. And because women always end up talking about men, especially men who have potentially behaved badly, let's not spend much time on that, right? You became governor almost overnight. So what was that like for you?
1: Well... It was extraordinary. It really was something. When you're lieutenant governor, and I was lieutenant governor for you know, almost eight years, you really knew that there was a possibility, but you're never quite sure until it happens. And it happened. I learned when everybody else did watching television that it was going to be official. So that was a little bit of a surprise. But I really feel ready for it. And a lot of women don't give themselves credit for the lifetime of experiences they've amassed. And I realized in that moment that having been, you know, worked on Capitol Hill for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, worked as an attorney in law firm, helped start women-owned businesses, ran for local office then ran for county office then ran for Congress and Lieutenant Governor, all that came to bear and really made me feel confident. Can I talk about this because this is one of the missing links in a lot of women in their own story, that they know they have this resume that's better than anybody else's and in our state, you know, I have a very strong resume for this position, but it's not just what it looks like on paper. It's the experiences I've developed as a, as a as a woman in this world and why I've championed issues that are deeply affecting women today and lack of child care and needing time with your family when a child's born or taking care of your parents. I've lived all that experience. So I knew in that moment that I could handle this. And I needed to convince New Yorkers who did not know me well when your lieutenant... You're a little bit in the shadow for a long time. But I was out there working the state, knowing the people, the policy, the places. So I really felt comfortable. And so I've embraced it. I love it. It's been an extraordinary privilege to be the governor of the state of New York, first woman. But I don't focus on that so much as I do just saying I've got a lot of people who are hurting after this pandemic. I need to get people back to work in a safe way. And uh, I'm, I'm energized by it.
0: Well, oh, that's great and I think you're you're right to touch on the fact that a lot of women often think they're not prepared for the job. There's this, you know, great thing where they say men will be like, "I can do it, no problem. Like bring me in." And women are like, "I don't know, maybe I should maybe I should add to these 17,000 things on my resume first, you know. I know that um the governor of Oregon is doing a lot of spearheading for more women governors in America and she says that often women will approach it like I would be better in federal government or I would be better in state government as working as a team. But you're basically doing a CEO's job. Like when I think about it, like if we back it up and you explain to people what the governor actually does, because I think most of us were kind of clued out on what the governor did until the pandemic happened, unless we knew who Arnold Schwarzenegger was when he became the you know governor of California the governor is basically the CEO of a state. You're running the state as the unilateral leader of the state. And I think we started to see during the pandemic the power a governor has, right? That the different approaches you have to the job and how much power there really is really open people's eyes when we see terrible governors changing rules, sweeping in new laws, We are attacking women, we are making laws about women, and this is all coming from governor's offices. And I think people didn't realize until maybe four years ago, three years ago, how important the governor's role is. So how do you see yourself fitting into that mix? Well,
1: what you said at the outset in this Oh, as, as you just mentioned, a lot of women don't see themselves in these roles, except I also think a lot of men don't see women in these roles either. So they're <laughs> That's true, right? There's literally in the state of New York, nine women governors, 44 since the beginning of our nation. So, and only six are Democrats right now. So there is a special bond that we have, but I'm setting out to break that mold. I really am because I worked as a member of Congress. I am very collaborative. I know how to bring people together. I was elected as a Democrat in the most Republican district in my state, a progressive Democrat who supported labor rights and environmental justice and LGBTQ plus communities. And I still got elected because I was able to go into diners and talk to farmers in a rural area and connect with them. And women do that so well. They're just regular people out there talking. I have a mom, too. I know what you're going through. And a lot of women and people don't think that they're capable. We can do those nice. You can be a nice judge or you can be a nice legislator. But, you know, a place like New York kind of rough and tumble politics and being governor, and I feel like the mold has got to be like a bully and neck people around a little bit. And I'm here to break that mold because it's it's about how I govern very differently, how women approach the job differently. Collaboration, but also with a toughness. Uh, we are very tested throughout life. I've been, and we can ha- we've handled a lot before we even got to these positions. I don't care if you're yeah. a 30 year old young woman; you've been through a lot already. You know, you know whether it's issues in high school and dating and bullying and social media and all. You've been through a lot and you've overcome a lot. So I'm here to make a point. This is not about me getting elected. This is about demonstrating that a woman has what it takes to govern differently, but even more effectively. Because we know women are held to a higher standard. I say that to women's groups or. And they all say, yep, we always are. I, I can't just meet that standard. I have to surpass it and demonstrate that women can do this. We're better suited for it than men are because we bring together all the skills that are necessary to share success, elevate more people. I'm now the leader of the Democratic Party for New York State. Past governors never embraced that role. I'm here to show that women can also be the political leader of this very complicated, diverse state. And in a way that I can help other Democrats get elected, members of Congress, all the way down to our local town board members. So I'm hardwired to help other people. And in this platform and having this this uh, uh, position, I'm in a position to do something about it. So I want to talk to any woman who doesn't think she has what it takes to run for an office like this. And I'll talk them out of their their own insecurity because I'll say, listen, I did this. So can you. Well, that's the thing
0: about having someone in a role we can look up to, right? Where We have our first female VP now, and now girls in the country can say, oh, look, I can be the vice president of the United States, and we're all just hoping that we finally break that final glass ceiling. But like you said, there's only nine female governors in America. I think 19 states have never even had a female governor. Um, Nine is the most there's ever been, by the way, at one time, right? There was once in 2004 and once now is nine total. And that's not a lot. And I think it's so funny that you say that women have been through a lot before they even get to leadership often. And women are terrific leaders because they do bring people together. They're quite good at listening. And we're also quite good at multitasking. I always think about my mom, in the kitchen growing up. And that was back when cords, you know, phones were on cords and she'd have it all wrapped around her and she'd be cooking and she'd be doing something. She'd be closing the fridge with her foot. And I thought, yeah, that's the kind of way women can lead too, where you're like, I've got this committee going, this committee going, this thing going. I can also talk to you here in my office. I can talk to politics girl. And it's all good. You know, we can, we can do it all. And I think it's wonderful for women to see a strong woman saying, I can take this job and I'm not going to apologize for it, which I think is wonderful. Um, now, you've obviously... As a female leader, but also just as a politician, you've been a very strong advocate for women's rights and for the government not telling women what to do with their own bodies. Um, You wrote what I thought was a pretty awesome letter to Ivanka Trump when she was first daughter that I read on Emily's list that was about Trump's anti-woman agenda and how she could step in and, and speak up for women in her position, which, of course, she did not. And it was a relatively scathing letter, which I very much loved. So tell me about your position on women's rights as the first female governor of New York which you are and also in New York which is the state where women's suffrage in itself was born and I know that you feel a responsibility as the governor of New York to counterbalance some of the things that are happening right now especially at the Supreme Court level if we lose Roe in June that New York will protect its its women.
1: That is exactly what we set out to do we will do that and you're right that the weight of history is on our shoulders because The torch has really been passed to us. A lot of women, the early suffragettes, 1848 was the first women's rights convention ever held in the history of this nation. It was held right here in New York in a very small area called Seneca Falls. And because of that, and they marched toward the right to vote. We were the first major state in in 1917 to have the right to vote, but to march forward beyond that, you know, the right for women of color to vote in the 1960s. And we had Shirley Chisholm, run for president. She was our own member of Congress. I'm from Buffalo. She's uh, buried in Buffalo right now and she married a man from Buffalo. So, and then we had Hillary Clinton from our state and uh, you know, so many other significant leaders that we use as role models, but also feel that weight of responsibility to the future generations because no other state has that history that we have to uh, treasure, but also say, what is the story that we're going to be able to leave? 100 years from now, when people look back at our time, how we got through this pandemic, how we got to these challenges with a very hostile Supreme Court, how we're still cleaning up after Donald Trump and the Republicans, and how we get through the pandemic and get women back to the gains they had made before they were lost when women had to stay home for almost two years because there was no one to watch the kids or their jobs. That's right. And a hotel didn't come back or they, they didn't. Uh, it didn't work out for them. Women were the hardest hit. I wrote that three weeks after the pandemic hit, that women are already disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Two years ago, I wrote that. And it has come true with a vengeance. So we have a lot on our plate right now. I'm up to the task, but I also know that New York is the place that people look to for leadership on women's issues. And so we have to continue making a difference. I have called out the Supreme Court and other states that are enacting reprehensible laws. I cannot believe, as someone my age who saw my mother fight for these issues, Roe v. Wade, that they're all under attack. I've spoken at more Planned Parenthood events and women's rights events and talked about this very core value, the right to control our own lives and our own destiny, our own bodies. And never did anyone really think that it'd come to a point where we're just months away from possibly getting a decision that's going to alter my daughter's life. And so- Yeah, it's shocking. It's truly shocking. This is personal to me. So New York is going to be a safe harbor. Uh, We codified Roe v. Wade into state law. So, when I presided in the Senate over that enactment, it was a very proud day for many of us. We also are requiring insurance companies to cover abortion services and making sure that the women have free access. And also, what I called out a couple months ago was the misinformation about abortion on social media and called out the social media platforms to take it down. I mean, these are flat out lies. And so we know our responsibility on this Did issue. Did that
0: work? Did people do that? Did they take no. it down?
1: <laughs> No, but but you were like, I said it. God damn it. I was there. I tried. Uh, Yeah, you did. You got to try. They they need to do the right thing. And uh, so this is a a right that we treasure in the state of New York. We're going to continue to fight for it. Uh, We're protected here, guaranteed we're protected here. But we also, as I said, at a a rally in Central Park with Kirsten Gillibrand a few months ago, you know, we stand together uh, as a safe Harbour, just as the Statue of Liberty stands at our harbour we're a safe harbor for women all over this nation when it comes to protecting the reproductive health and pay equity. Uh, we're coming upon pay equity day when women in the state of New York, even a progressive state like New York still only make white women only make 85 cents on the dollar for a white man. Uh, communities of color for a uh, native American or Latina, it's down to 54 cents on the dollar, which is appalling. Yeah, pathetic. No, it's pathetic. We know, we got a lot on our plate, but it have not a woman who's gonna see things differently. I, I was underpaid my first job on Capitol Hill. I guarantee the men sit next, we're making more, but I didn't know how to negotiate. I didn't ask for more money. I took a pay cut to go work on Capitol Hill from a law firm. And I thought, oh, I'm so happy to be here. How naive was that? I should have made more yeah. money. So I oh, want yeah. women to stand up for themselves, show what we've done before, show that they also have a responsibility for the younger sisters who follow them because they're gonna be judged someday about what they did to promote women's rights during their time. So I take this very seriously.
0: Well, that seems like a good time to take a little break. We'll be right back after this with New York Governor Kathy Hochul. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work, especially the most important relationship you have in your life, the one you have with yourself. And while most of us will drop anything to help someone we care about, how often do we make that effort to give ourselves the same treatment? I've been in therapy for years. It's one of the best things I ever did for myself. In fact, one of my closest friends just started therapy because she saw how much it helped me and how different I am than when I started. And this is someone who truly knows me and can really see how much I've grown and how much happier I am in my own skin. And she wanted that for herself. So she got herself a therapist and now she's raving about it. Here's the thing, we put so much energy into our jobs, our family, our friends, our expectations for ourselves, other people's expectations for us, that we need to put more energy into how we're actually doing. And quite frankly, if you do that, all those other aspects of your life will be better anyway. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with your therapist. So if you don't want to see anyone on camera, you don't have to. It's far more affordable than in-person therapy, and you'll be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try. See why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. Right now, Politics Girl listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash politicsgirl. That's betterhel dot com slash politicsgirl. You will never regret Taking care of yourself. Today's pod is brought to you by Sunbasket. And if you're like me and totally sick of the rotation of food you make for yourself or your family, then this might be the moment to update mealtime with Sunbasket. Sunbasket delivers healthy meals using organic produce and sustainable seafoods and meats, so you don't end up stuck shopping and cooking and trying to keep everyone healthy and happy by yourself. Sunbasket's award-winning chefs are constantly thinking of new recipes and new tastes to keep it all interesting. Each week they have dozens of options to choose from. And it's not just dinner, it's quick breakfasts and snacks on the go and amazing lunches. I mean, stop suffering through those sad lunches. Sunbasket has exciting new grain burritos and noodle bowls for every day of the week. Try a Chiyote citrus pork or black rice bibimbap or Szechuan glass noodles. Just heat and eat. Enjoy mealtime again. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $90 off and a free gift when you order. Go to Sunbasket.com/slash politicsgirl and enter promo code PoliticsGirl at checkout. That's S-U-N-B-A-S-K-E-T.com slash politicsgirl and enter promo code PoliticsGirl. Thank you, Sunbasket. And we're back and talking to the first female governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, about women in politics. Let me ask you a question, because I think you would be a a very interesting person to talk to, because obviously you said we're living with this Supreme Court that's gone quite far to the right, to the point where it's almost alarming how it feels. Uh, almost like we're living in a a new resurgence of religious liberty. It's a very religious far-right court. And I think the statistic is 68% of the court is Catholic. Now, you are also Catholic. You're a born and bred Irish Catholic, one of five, you know, upstate New York girl. And I wonder... You are this advocate for women's rights and the right to our bodily autonomy. And we're seeing lots of other governors overturning laws for religious purposes and bringing their religion into our laws. And, and I look at someone like Joe Biden, who is a practicing Catholic, who has always been a man of faith, but he doesn't bring that into his legislating. And I, I feel like you're doing the same thing. So could you talk a little bit about being a person of faith, but also a person who does not believe that that should dictate the laws of everybody? Right.
1: There has to be a very clear separation, church right. and state. I mean, this is what John Kennedy, when he was elected as the first Catholic president, I was a young girl and the picture of John Kennedy and my grandparents small because they were Irish immigrants who came here with nothing. But John Kennedy was a hero to all the Irish back home. So I knew who he was as uh, just as a little child. And, you know, people were anxious about that dynamic. But you have true leaders who, who believe in the values of the Democratic Party, which I do, and I was raised as a social justice Catholic. My parents had us out there protesting the Vietnam War. I wore a black armband in school in fifth grade to protest the war. I marched again, for, I marched for civil rights with my parents. Uh, I was worked on environmental issues as a kid, helped start the first ecology club on Earth Day. So I was raised in a way that- oh, oh, You're so ahead of the game. I'm like, I'm like Forrest Gump, I've lived through everything that's out there. Your hair looks way better. Thank you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> me at the dinner table you know what what social justice was all about and as a catholic we were called to act on that you know my parents were involved in helping people with disabilities transition from homes you know from their institution into homes where they live with us my parents always had children from the inner city live with us we had six kids and there's always more kids around us my mom and dad started up a summer day camp for the children of migrant farm workers that i worked at when i was in grade school to help my mom out uh, I can't tell you, she, my parents and I started a home for victims of domestic violence. So throughout our lives, we just, we don't wear it on our sleeves. We just act with faith and know that it's our responsibility as citizens of this earth, but also I take the responsibility as a Catholic to help other people. It's that simple. And my mother's favorite saying was, go into the world and do well, but most importantly, go into the world and do good. Uh, that was on my refrigerator growing up. And we lost my mom to ALS a few years ago. We put that on her, oh. her headstone so her grandchildren and great-grandkids could see that's how I was raised. And that's that's why I feel that this gift of this position I'm in right now allows me to, yes, act on my faith in ways that help people, but not in a way that's going to deny people rights, uh, basic rights to their own autonomy. And that's why it is very clear to me how I can balance the truth. And it's not a conflict in my opinion. I, I said, continue... To support the ter- church when they do, you know, the missionary work, the outreach with the immigrants, the refugees are incredible. What they do with the Catholic Relief Program, in fact, they're in uh, Poland right now helping refugees. I'm working with them, so I will support those causes. I know they're the right thing to do, but that doesn't have a conflict in my opinion about women's rights. I, I don't. It's not a problem for me at all.
0: No, it seems like that's exactly the way we should be treating faith. You know, whether you're a Catholic or you're Jewish or you're a Muslim, you know, your faith is your faith. And if it makes you into a better person in the world and you're out there doing good, then wonderful. When your faith starts inflicting uh, rules and laws on other people's autonomy, then that's when it becomes a problem. Exactly. Um, let's talk the Democrats a little bit. You know, people can see that we fight. They can see that we're struggling. They can see that we're now trying to protect the vote even. There's this idea, and I've, I've put it out there myself, that the Dems struggle with having fight, you know, that we don't have enough fight, that we're not prepared to play in this hideous, dirty trick playing field the Republicans have laid for us. Um, but I don't actually think we have no fight. I just think we have a messaging problem. Um, so why do you think that it is that Democrats always end up on defense when our policies and positions are the ones that are really
1: favored by the majority of the country? You know, that is a question and we started asking ourselves back when I was a 20-something year old staffer on Capitol Hill. Oh, that was like, a problem back then, too? <laughs> no, this is oh, me. Lord, you'd think we'd learn. This was this, this this Ronald Reagan's era, okay? This is how oh, long yeah. mm-hmm. it was. And Tip O'Neill was the speaker. I worked for Senator Moynihan. And we're always trying to figure out, how come Democrats are so bad at messaging? Republicans are destroying everything. All the energy initiatives that Jimmy Carter put in place, that if they had stayed, incentives for wind and solar electric vehicles back then, instead of being wiped out by Ronald Reagan, we'd have a completely different environment. I guarantee it. That's just one example. But you know what it is with Democrats? Um, a lot of Democrats think they need to explain and give all the nuances of different policy and there's this debate. Is that party on this? Come on, folks, just just be straight with people. I, I'm an FDR-type Democrat. You know, we lift people up after cataclysmic events like the Depression, like a pandemic. We help them get jobs, give them a higher minimum wage, take care of child care, take care of their health care, take care of education, and the rest works out. Okay, let's just broaden this middle of the base which is still there and i put myself over there although i've had many progressive values but i have a state that's as diverse as governing san francisco and texas at the same time because i've got new york city but i have a lot my landmass is upstate run from which is pretty conservative so they have different views of me depending on which neighborhood i'm in you know they, they're not sure but that's fine that's fine all i know is i'm gonna i am that fighter that you're talking about because you come from a steel town like i do and my dad and Grandpa worked at a steel plant. You get kind of scrappy, so that's why I approach politics. Hey, if I've got to roll, you know, take off the gloves and fight back, I I embrace it. I grew up a lot of brothers. I'm used to a good fight. So, uh, oh boy,
0: do I love a scrappy a scrappy one! I got to tell you, it's the way to do it. It's the way to do it. I wonder sometimes if this whole idea of bipartisanship feels dated and naive in the modern world of politics, you know, this us versus them, what we're looking at now feels more like democracy versus autocracy, the way that these laws are being made. Do you, do you see a big difference than when you entered politics? Or do you think like, hey, back even back in Ronald Reagan's days, we were watching this happen. We just weren't as vocal about it. And now more people are engaged and they see it happening. Um, yeah,
1: that's, that's a great... Yeah, because what do you think? I, I do think that that was more of an era of statesmanship back in the 80s when I was a young staffer. I saw the giants of the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, working together. Now, they would criticize each other during the day, but at the end of the day, they went out to dinner, their spouses socialized, their kids went to, you know, scouts together or were in synagogue together or, you know, school together. So it was a very different world when there was, there was this sense of um, – more humanity, more humanity where people treat mm. each other better. And my first week on the job as a young staffer, I was told to go work with the Republicans, you know, Bob Dole and Howard Baker, and their staffs, and work out a bill to help uh, the immigration crisis. And what we did, we came out a compromise that gave amnesty to literally millions of people who are living here already, that they didn't have to return, that they became citizens. And then there were penalties at the border and interdiction and all this, but but it was a great compromise. The same thing with the major anti-drug bill I worked on when crack cocaine was huge. We were Democrats working until dawn for weeks on end, but eating pizza with Republican staffers trying to solve a problem. I'll tell you what I think is when it changed, if you wanna know my, because my, as a staffer, I thought this is how it is. You know, yeah, we fight a little bit, we work together. It's good for the country. When Newt Gingrich was elected, One thing he said was he told the new members of Congress, the Republicans, not to move their families to Washington, to stay in your districts, come in and spend as little time there as possible. So you fly in on Tuesday morning, you go to like a Republican or Democratic meeting, a caucus, then you sit on your side of the aisle in a hearing committee or on the floor of the Congress, and then you're off doing events or fundraising with only people of your own party at night. You get up the next day, do it again, then you go home. Um, So you can go an entire week never seeing someone from the other side of the party. So I came out of a Republican area. And I said, you know what? I know these people. I mean, I, I'm worried about the farmers. I'm worried about small towns. I'm worried about their future and how, how rural problems with healthcare and inaccessibility to a good, good education. So I knew these issues and I would go over to the Republican side of the aisle and just talk to people and try to win them over. And I'll give you one example. I went on a trip to Afghanistan with a number of individuals I was on the Armed Services Committee and we wanted to spend uh, a few days with our troops and I had a chance to meet a lot of women in uniform which is quite extraordinary but they set it up so I was the one of two democrats and three republicans they were in the majority and a couple were actually tea party women but after flying all night long and you know they broke out a couple of bottles of bourbon as things women from the south would do I just uh, you know we started talking about our Got to love them and the challenges we had as women in politics and what we had overcome. I have to tell you, by the time we got back, there was a relationship that was established and all of us would have trouble being personally critical, you know, criticize the policy. What's missing is that chance to have a connection. Now I will fight to the bitter end in defense of my policies. And I do believe that Trump and that whole phenomenon was something we could not have foreseen. So I don't know that that's repairable, with people who feel that strongly. But I do believe that there's some moderate Republicans who feel the party walk from them. And I think the Democratic Party is a place where we're all fighting for basic uh, values to lift people up. And I wanna make broaden the Democratic tent uh, to the left and to the right and broaden the middle because that's the only way we're gonna win elections. And we can't be defeatist. We can't say it's already over, there's a wave coming and it's just a bad year, mid-year. It's like, I'm not giving up. We're just starting this fight. And I'll fight back with every fiber of my body to protect the Democratic majority in the Congress and in the Senate, because as a governor, they're the ones with Joe Biden sending billions of dollars for our infrastructure and climate resiliency and pandemic relief. That doesn't happen under Republicans. And that's the story I'm saying out there. Republicans were in charge. We wouldn't have any of this money. We'd be struggling. So I'm going to continue giving credit to the Democrats in Washington, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, Nancy Pelosi, who I served with uh, and had such an admiration for her, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have this. So vote for them. Keep them in office.
0: And I can do that. No, you totally can do that. And I think you're speaking to the way people wish politics was. You know, we wish that we could. You said you're on a plane with these people. You cannot not make a relationship you work with people that you're truly working with as opposed to working against them where your job is just to say no to everything they're saying if you're there with a common goal which in our case should be a better stronger america uh, healthier happier people you know advancing the country as opposed to stopping a party, which I believe has become one party's problem, um, we would have a far better country and we should be reaching out both sides. As you said, there's an entire wing of the Republican Party, the Trump part of the party, that maybe there is no middle ground with them. At this point, they're on a, their own path. And I'm not sure if we should spend too much of our time trying to reach across the aisle to them because our arms are not 400 feet long. Do you know what I mean? They're too far away. But the rest of the people, the people that are have kind of kept their sanity amongst them, who really still believe in America and democracy and the American experiment, then I'm there with you. I'm willing to fight for that. And I do not think that we are a done deal for the midterms. I think that is absolutely bananas. And I actually think we have a very good chance because I think people are fired up for democracy. They are not for these new policies that hurt children and hurt people in different communities and and belittle and make people small. And this idea that we're going to minimize American children's education, what we even learn, so we don't feel bad. Of course, we should feel bad about things that happened in the past, not personally, but as a country, so we can learn and grow past it. And this idea that we're not going to teach children history is bananas. Because where will America stand in the world if we're not even educating our children? So now I know you have to go. And I want to tell you that I have your back 100%. This is Mm -hmm. the kind of of leadership that I'm hoping to see more in America. So now I need you to know that New York is my favorite city in the world. I lived there for four years. I lived there during 9-11. And I know you're an upstate girl. Do you get to the city? Because if you do, I'd love to know what you think, because it's still my favorite city. Doesn't matter how many places I've lived. New York is still my favorite because of its diversity, the people, the careers. There are so many different kinds of people there. When I moved to Los Angeles, which is where I live now, um, I was so surprised that everyone sort of had the same career, wanted to be in the same industry, where I'd been in New York, where everyone was all over the place. What is your feeling about the city and about New York in general?
1: No, since I was lieutenant governor, I probably spend anywhere from three to five days a week in New York. So I, I, I'm a New York City resident as well, basically. So I know the city. I have a, I stay in a hotel right near my office, so I get to walk the streets. I have seen a transformation, and there has been so much pent up energy out there when people were zooming in in their pajamas and wearing masks, feeling so disconnected from life that we are, we are back in a way that I could not have foreseen. Not everybody's back in their office, but they're certainly making time for brunch on Sundays and going to plays and hanging out with their friends at night because our subway's packed during the off hours. So I think they're working from home, but they're coming in to enjoy the human connection that we lost. I've been on the stages of Broadway welcoming people, saying thank you for being part of our comeback. This is great. We're getting more young people wanna work in New York City. There's this reverse migration going on. We have more tech jobs in New York City. We, I'm sorry, Silicon Valley, but we're about to surpass Silicon Valley in the number of tech jobs we blew past Boston a couple of years ago. So the large giants and the small entrepreneurs are all coming together to keep this, this, uh, the creative collisions that spawn out of innovation and, and just the culturals are back. So, you know, as I mentioned, uh, there's just it's, it's great. You'd be really happy to come back. working on the crime issue but that's every city so we're working on that very intensely and when i say working on i'm working with the mayor of new york and if you know the history there's never been a relationship between a governor of new york and the mayor of new york because it's always you know kind of competitive and you know, I don't need to tell you any more about that, but it's women discovered. <laughs> I would like to
0: hear more about that. I, I like I like a combative story. Yeah, the guys always
1: battled, and it's about credit. But I just I developed a relationship with the mayor because he represents my largest city, and I've you know I've worked on relationships with everybody. So, so again, that's another example of how women govern differently. And you're mentioning the other issues and the collaboration, and you know whether we can repair places like Congress. I think you send more women there, uh, you're going to see a different outcome because yes, there are outliers and some you know. Some people that on the other side that have really lost it. But uh by and large, you will get that, that spirit of yes, we've been through a lot together. We know the struggles. And I think it's I think more women in leadership positions are going to change the tenor of the debate in this country. And we'll fight for those issues. We'll fight uh tooth and nail for the values that we espouse and fight for our children and a better, you know, a cleaner environment. So when they grow older, our grandkids have an, an earth that they're they can inherit and actually breathe and live. Yeah. So- Breathing would be nice. Breathing very nice. So (laughs) that's the mark I'm going to leave on New York government to show that there's a different way to govern. You know, having more results that'll lift more people up, and people be prouder, and to know that you know we're going to just fight like hell for everybody out there until we feel that everyone has been recovered from the pandemic, has a shot truly at the best opportunity and and really the American dream, what I call the New York dream now. Well, I truly wish you good luck
0: in both your primary and your uh, general election, and it was such a pleasure to speak with you, and I, I wish you nothing but good luck as you try and help everyone pursue the American slash New
1: York dream. All right, thank you very much. Enjoy the conversation.
0: I'll thank leave. you. Bye-bye. So that was New York Governor Kathy Hochul, tireless advocate for women's rights and women in leadership. She stepped up to the plate when opportunity called, and she's clearly a big proponent of more women feeling the confidence to do the same. We both clearly believe that the Democrats must and can protect our majority and that we need to reach out to anyone who believes in democracy and the American experiment to fight for our country's values that are currently under attack. Governor Hochul really appears to be the real deal. A leader who believes in listening and collaboration and learning from others. Someone who truly has had the good of other people in mind since she was a child, but who isn't afraid to take off the gloves and get scrappy if the moment calls for it. God, I love that kind of woman. Thank you to Governor Hochul for joining us today, and thank you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network, and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.